0: Narrative Futures How do the stories we tell shape how we think about the future, the present, and the past? What is speculation for? And how might we construct better narratives for a better future? Narrative Futures is a podcast coming to you from Futures Thinking, a research network housed in the Oxford Centre for Research in the Humanities. My name is Chelsea Haith. I'm a doctoral researcher in the Faculty of English here at the University of Oxford. Joining me for the fifth episode of Narrative Futures is Jared Sheeran to discuss the Kitschies Awards, Literary Institutions and Indie Publishing. This podcast is interactive. Following the interview... You'll be treated to two writing prompts designed by novelist and creative writing tutor extraordinaire Louis Greenberg. We invite you to share your response to these with us via email at Futuresthinking We'll share these on the blog, where you'll also be able to find the full transcript of each episode with links to the books, writers and ideas that we discuss. As the world so radically changes, We hope these conversations and ideas give you insight and inspiration to think about how else we might live and create collectively going forward. Jared Sheeran has been nominated for several Hugo Awards, which I mistakenly thought he'd won. He co-founded Jurassic London, indie publishers of dozens of genre-bending anthologies and authors, and is one of the founders of the Kitschies Awards for progressive, intelligent and entertaining works containing an element of the speculative or fantastic. A man of much energy, Jared's day job is in ethical advertising as the head of planning at m and Saatchi World Services. <music> i'm wondering what you think about the genre taxonomy debates and particularly the designation of speculative fiction
1: well you you just weren't going to start with an easy question (laughs) (laughs) let's let's go back to debating on whether or not i want a hugo (laughs) (laughs) Um, a few thoughts about this um i think ultimately i just don't care Which I don't I don't mean to say that in any sort of like belittling or dismissive way, because um, I think marketing categories matter a lot. I think um, it's, you know, as long as there are physical bookshops, books have to go into singular, discrete locations, which means we have to figure out what genre a book most is. Um, I think genres are great ways to search for things. They're a great way to to understand that if I like X, I will like all of these. X-like thing. When it actually comes to publishing a book, it's one of the questions you sort of ask yourself later on. As Jurassic, at least, we never got a book thinking, what genre is this? We got a book and then fell in love with it, um, published it, and then later tried to figure out, okay, what's the, you know, I now have to force this into one bucket, because that's the only way Waterstones will understand it. What's the best bucket for it? Outside of sort of publishing directly, um, I was one of the founders of the the Kitschies Awards, um, and that was set up about ten years ago mm. to celebrate intelligent, um, entertaining, and progressive science fiction and fantasy. Mm. And the difficulty with any award is that you you do have to create that sort of universe of books that you are are setting out to judge. And so that's where genre labels are incredibly important. And although we wanted to look into science fiction and fantasy books primarily, that that's how we saw the remit of the award. As soon as you say we are a prize for science fiction, everyone else sees it as a certain sort of prize. They submit certain sorts of books and they expect a certain sort of behavior. Similarly with, with fantasy. So the language we used there was... All of those things, you know, intelligent, progressive, entertaining books with some element of the speculative or fantastic in it. And that allowed us to really dance around, putting ourselves into a category. And in turn, it meant that when we were talking about the prize and the sorts of books we were expecting to, to read and reward, we could talk to publishers and say, you know, listen, this is a wonderful. Um, I mean, I remember we, we got Andrew Motion's Silver. Which is a sequel to to Treasure Island. And I mean that is only the loose you'll never find that shelved in fantasy, but that is absolutely a novel with with an element of the fantastic in it. And it really allowed us to extend um our remit and make sure that we were proving that value of the of the speculative and the fantastic more than it had previously been bounded by, I suppose. And I, but,
0: I completely agree. I think you're absolutely right. There's this this kind of sense that the the pulp quality of those genres has, for a long time, meant that they aren't included in um, sort of literary fiction prizes. Obviously, that's changing now. But um, I like what you say about you know including an element of another genre. You know, the genres of the of horror and sci-fi and um, this, you know the speculative generally in books that are otherwise you know considered. Uh, literary in some way or you know as you say intelligent and provocative
1: i I wonder if there's something and i apologize because this is really coming out of left field but these are the only two genres that the actual name of the genre has fiction in it i mean fantasy is you know by definition it's the genre of books that are fantasy they're completely made up they're completely wild they're they're total they're total lies and science fiction is again in the title it's fiction and you don't get that with crime you don't get that with romance you don't get that with literature all of those don't they aren't labeled as fiction um as untruth in the same way that science fiction and fantasy are
0: mm, and it's really that's really funny to me i think because fiction is by definition entirely made up
1: i i totally agree so it's sort of <laughs> it's almost redundant in those titles whereas yeah. um, i don't know the others seem to be aspiring to be something more than that yeah
0: yeah this kind of sense that there's a, a you know a replication of of reality um but but there but there cannot be. I think there's also something interesting about the misnomer of science and fiction that is important. Um, I think to the history of of the genre, kind of going back to Hugo Gernsback and the you know the pulp magazines and, and the idea that it was a- about science, um, particularly. And then obviously the difficult tensions in academic writing about these genres, about you know fantasy being sort of excluded by by the likes of Darko Suvin. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about Jin Falls and Love and the Outcast Hours that you edited together with Mavesh Murad. And I'm thinking about form here, particularly thinking about the short story collections versus telling stories in um, long fiction form, such as novels. Um, and what do you think the benefits of each of those forms are for writing or presenting um, kind of narratives of these genres?
1: That's an excellent question. I'm a big believer in the themed anthology. Um, just in general, whether it's you know whether it's about gin or like Outcast Hours is about the night and sort of the concept of living at night. And other anthologies I've been able to to work on are you know they they could be around London or um, mummies or you could do an anthology about around any sort of theme. And I, I think themes are wonderful. And that's really where the difference between a short story and a novel comes out because a, a novel is ultimately one perspective, and it is one wonderfully detailed, wonderfully deep dive into one person's perspective, into a theme, into a topic, um, you know, in, into a particular vision. And a novel has the ability to bring one person's vision or one person's narrative to life. And honestly, a, a completely unparalleled format probably across all media. Um, I, I think the, you know, the immersion of a good novel is pretty much impossible to beat. Mm-hmm. Um, Short stories are they're not immersive in that way, and they they can't be they they don't have they don't have the the time or the space to do so. But what you get by compiling short stories is a collection of narratives and a, a collection of perspectives, all sorts of different visions. It's sort of a exhausted parable, but that that idea of the sort of blind men and the elephant
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and if you want to really understand something big and something incredibly Deep or broad or or global or um, you know something that is experienced in a lot of different ways. I think that's where you need short stories. You know, going back to the Jin falls in love. I mean, Jin are a global myth on a scale and with a history and with a presence that actually probably no other mythological creature has. Um, cer- certainly, be very hard to find another another creature with that sort of global prevalence and there are fantastic novels about the jin but they are that one perspective from a one one culture one viewpoint one one way of encountering the jin and that that doesn't do them justice mm. it could be an absolutely wonderful novel and it will do that perspective justice but it won't do the entirety of the jin justice and that's not to say that this anthology does or any anthology can but at least you can start to see the shape of the elephant by having a few more hands on it rather than just relying on on one person with particularly sensitive fingers
0: mm, absolutely uh, you kind of you articulate that in the um in the introduction to gin falls in love with the multiple spellings of the word a reader will notice immediately um reading the contents page that the the authors come from all over the world and you're you know you're sourcing ideas um as you say kind of globally and and yeah you've got lots of different hands on um kind of sharing um yeah, a sort of fantastical body of, of nerve endings um, thinking about um, thinking about that, that concept. So, so on that collection, I'm kind of wondering about the, the role of folklore and myth in the modern world and in modern literature um, and sort of integration of those things with, yeah, with these genres um, and with a very kind of technologically advanced world, this kind of interest and return, these old stories, the kind of stories of, of beginning, right?
1: I completely agree, and I, I think if there's one thing I learned from editing Jin, it's that the distance between the our contemporary modern scientific world and this sort of mysterious mythic past is really there. It, there's really the boundaries between them are incredibly thin, and you know, as I learned through this, there are there are huge swathes of the world that still understand and and react to the presence of Jin. Um, That the the cultures of dealing with gin are still built into everyday life. I've seen it in my neighborhood in London. Um, I have friends that still understand and react to the presence of gin. So they're they're not in. It's not a myth that's in the distant past. It's a folklore that is ingrained in modern culture as well. And you know, in to be honest, I think I think one of the the best books on this is. I've always been taken by Robert Graves' version of the Greek myths, um, where he explains the myths as the, the science of the time. And it's just, it's the way of understanding the universe and making sense out of it. And for many parts of the world, um, and for many cultures, and for many people all over the world, djinn are still very much playing into that sensibility and that, that worldview and that uh, uh, capacity to understand what's happening in the world around you. And then on the, I suppose, the other side of the coin is that you have stories in Jin like um, Sammy Shah's Reap, which mm. I think is a fantastic use of uh, creating a separation between those two worlds. It, it has parallels between drones and gin. and it's an incredibly powerful story because it, it shows how these are two very, very, very different things, the sort of mythic, I suppose, and the scientific, but... They have the the same emotional and physical impact, and you, um, we wind up replicating these patterns over and over again in in really sinister ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something really important in this, um, the and the idea of jinn and and um, these these myths as ways of explaining the world um, for thinking about alternative knowledges um, and the ways that these kinds of stories teach us something about how how we've constructed knowledge in the west and how that's come unfortunately to to be so dominant in kind of in academic spaces around the world and i think that these kinds of short stories go go a long way to repairing some of those damages
1: one of the anthologies we published as jurassic was called irregularity and it might be my it might be my favorite i don't think anyone's ever really allowed to say that whatever i think it was my favorite and it's certainly the um, if everyone sort of looks back at their body of work and think oh that's the one that should have gotten more attention and, and done better than it, it deserved irregularity we did in partnership with the national maritime museum and the theme was the age of reason and, and that is a absolutely fascinating brief for what is ultimately a, a science fiction and fantasy anthology. Absolutely. Um, because, I'm very loaded. Know, ab- just so much fun. Because, mm. um, you know, you have a an era of human history where everyone is doing their damnedest to put everything into patterns and into boxes and bring order out of chaos and sort of stomp out all the superstition that, that came before. But then at the same time, you have an era where Due to you know advances in in science and knowledge and thinking and travel and exploration, they're they're also finding more unknowns than ever before, and it's such fertile ground for stories because we got some absolutely brilliant ones. But they are about that sort of intersection of look, I'm completely confident, I have ordered the world, and oh my god, what is that thing over there? That doesn't fit into a box. But I, I've always. Really been fond of that one for tr- trying to tackle head-on. I think what is an incredibly difficult theme which, theme, which is you know what is what is the place for fantasy and, and chaos and irregularity in a world that prides itself on making everything very ordered and tidy.
0: I think we're I think we're learning a lot at the moment about how order and tidiness are perhaps not uh, sustainable in any kind of uh, long-term way.
1: You're, you're absolutely right how um how easy it is for things to sort of fall apart
0: yeah the center really cannot hold <laughs> so i wanted to talk a little bit about jurassic london um that you set up with your um partner Anne, and i want to ask you a little bit about how you got into small press publishing
1: um arrogantly um i, I think <laughs> Fair. um so um Anne and I were both bloggers, actually, at the time. We we were about four or five years into what was then a um, fairly successful sort of genre fiction blog Um, and had that sort of dangerous almost understanding of how publishing worked. And like everyone that sort of knows about 10% of a thing, we thought we knew about 200% of a thing and we could do it better than anyone else. And we heard, you know, our, our belief, which I think runs um, pretty much in parallel with yours is that speculative fiction and fantasy and science fiction are incredibly valuable tools in helping make sense of the world, in helping engage people in really difficult themes and topics, that it's sort of an underutilized resource in connecting people with social goals and greater advancement of humanity, something. Um, but something like that yeah something 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 <laughs> I'm trying, to,
0: trying to work through it myself yeah. but absolutely that
1: yeah <laughs> um and so we um we spotted that at tate britain there was going to be a new exhibition of the art of john martin and martin is just an absolutely ludicrous author i mean he's he sort of Turner-esque if you've not seen his stuff, but it's just sort of, it's all like if Turner did volcanoes. And so it's just tiny figures basically just being devoured by smoke and fire and visions of hell and heaven and, you know, the Midlands, but he makes them all look a bit the same. And it's very, very pulpy in a way to be at Tate. Um, And we looked at that and we're like, oh my God, this stuff, you know, it's, it's 2011. If something has apocalypse, is about the apocalypse, is about dystopias, like that's super cool in publishing right now. And here's Tate Britain doing this massive exhibition of apocalyptic art. Like, why is there not a book to go with it? And we spoke to a few editors and publishers that we knew, and they're all like, That exhibition is three months away. That's impossible, and no one would want it. So we're like, three months? Who everyone can make a book in three months? Like, how hard is it? You just put words on paper. Um
0: so yeah. <laughs> So, <laughs> Optimism.
1: Uh, um, I mean just you know we were we were helped out immensely by friends that knew better than we did that could taught us how to do layouts that taught us how to use software that literally like lent us vans to to take books from point a to point b um we called in sort of every favor we ever knew with every author that we could sort of blackmail we um and we, we put together what is actually a I think a really good book called Stories of the Apocalypse and it launched and we completely blagged a relationship with Tate Britain and said, look, we just conveniently have this story, this book of stories coming out at exactly the same time as your exhibition that happens to be about John Martin, what are the odds? <laughs> and they supported it and they were absolutely lovely. You know, at the end we're like, well, okay, that was a really, really terrible idea. Um, and we, we probably shouldn't have done that, but you know, next time we should give ourselves like six months or nine months. That sort of thing, and we just kept going over its sort of five-year run. There were probably somewhere between forty and fifty different Jurassic publications of all sorts of shapes and sizes, Um, and
0: that's an incredible volume of output. Oh,
1: just just ludicrous! And you know, we we were determined to only do two things a year, so that that worked well. (laughs) Um, but there was always something to experiment with. You know, there was always a, a new story that needed a home or there was always a new printer we wanted to try, or there was always, you know, a new piece of art that needed something to go along with it or, um, a new idea or, or, or something to scheme with. And, you know, there were two of us, um, and lots of enthusiasm and the willingness to fail, which I think is incredibly important when it comes to, um, publishing. And it it was really, really, really fun. We had a a good pitch to cultural institutions, because what we were doing is, you know, bringing people to Tate Britain, or to the National Maritime Museum, or to the Egypt Exploration Society, or to English Pen, you know, we we were helping extend what they did and explain what they did to a completely new audience, um, using the medium of, of fiction.
0: It's so important the extending of, you know, I was thinking about that when you were speaking about John Martin's work and the intersections of, you know, the, the painting as the inspiration for the collection and then the collection as a draw card for new, well, new viewers, new people to interact with these kind of all these different media and, and kind of on these on these topics that are that are so important.
1: It, exactly. And it, it, you know, this is. Going back to that role of, of stories and, and of fiction, it, it gives you a different perspective on what you are seeing as a museum visitor or a gallery visitor or a, a student of history or whatever you might be. You know, if there's also a story about it, it, it helps bring it to life or give you give you another way of thinking about it or interacting with it. And it just makes it that much more appealing.
0: Absolutely. I think when what you're saying here about um, having having a story to make sense of something and previously stories kind of using stories to make sense of the world. I want to speak a little bit about your um, your, your day job and um, what you've described as using narrative to affect change. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: So I work in a very specific offshoot
0: of advertising
1: Um advertising. I'm at a specialist division of the agency MNC Saatchi Um, and what we do is work to create um, social impact using all of the sort of traditional tools of advertising and marketing and communications. So we work with the development sector and we work with governments and NGOs and transnationals to help them use communications to tackle some of the more complex and challenging problems in the world today. You know communications is an incredibly powerful tool as we've been talking about you know the the ability of a story to help people understand something um to help bring a behavior to life to help shift people's attitudes and obviously that needs to be underpinned with the presence of a solution communications can't be the answer in and of itself but communications can really help bring that answer to life and make it more compelling for people and we see that a lot in the development sector and and working with governments you know it, it's not just enough to have the right path out there or to to have the the solution or the vaccine or the hand-washing behavior um, you need to make sure that people understand why and how and emotionally engage with that too
0: absolutely and i think yeah it's the role of stories you know stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and what we are as a society right which is in part what the role of marketing and advertising is this is what you are and therefore this is what you may need. And I think that's really interesting, particularly at the moment when we're thinking um, or we're experiencing kind of radical shifts in cultural norms.
1: That's absolutely right. Talking about what we're seeing now in the UK, there's been a lot of you know new rules and new guidelines and new expectations of how we behave and how we consume um, and what we should and shouldn't be doing. And and I think we've been able to see over the past few months you know, what the difference is between a behavior that's made compelling or a behavior that has sort of a, a strong narrative underpinning, you know, do this to protect the NHS to save lives, versus uh, behaviors that seem arbitrary or hypocritical or are nonsensical. And the ability of, you know, narratives to bring to life what is a honestly, you know, intangible, invisible sort of, ethereal threat and, and make it personal and give people the not just the tools, but also the hope on how to get through that, I think is, is incredibly important.
0: Absolutely. I see a lot of stuff on, on Twitter, which is really interesting in terms of narrativizing the pandemic, um, but also narrativizing movements for resistance to oppressions, narratives surrounding Black Lives Matter, for example. And, and those, these all seem like narratives about you know, about the future or future oriented, um, because it's about what do we want the world to look like soon?
1: Yes, I, I think that's incredibly important. And I think the Black Lives Matter movement is all the more impressive because of what it's done in helping people be aware of the narratives that we've already been subscribing to uh, without realizing. Absolutely. Um, I suppose most importantly, it's about creating a a new, positive, inclusive, uh, you know, fantastic narrative that we can all look forward to in the future. But the power that it has in helping people question the narratives that we're, we've already been consuming and been subscribed to.
0: Absolutely. So I'm wondering now a little bit about your reading habits in the last while. And also, what do you read that helps you think about the future?
1: I suppose like everyone else, um, my reading during lockdown has been erratic. <laughs> and you know my behaviors have changed um, really really wildly since it began um i so um i'm gonna it is it is reading that i'm doing now but i, I am going to stretch it back a bit um i i set myself the reading challenge of trying to find and read every debut winner of the edgars um and the edgars are the prize uh, by the mystery writers of america
2: hmm.
1: um and um, the debut category goes back to, I think, like 1950 or something close to that. And, you know, I'm, I'm a mystery reader. Um, I'm, I'm an everything reader, I think. Uh, but to me, it's been a very interesting quest over about nine months to, you know, find a lot of these books, many of which are forgotten or lost or completely impossible to track down. Um, but see how, you know, to read seven decades of crime fiction of popular crime fiction and see how the category has has changed and how it reflects society and you know how it treats race and gender and sexuality um you know what it thinks of as permissible drama um and permissible behavior um what you know what crime used to shock or not shock over the years um and of course just the the trends in what makes for a popular mystery is is kind of fun um i've kind of wrapped that up Um, and was trying to think of like, okay, what's the next sort of equivalent challenge I I could set myself. Um, and I discovered the Spur Awards for Western fiction, (laughs) um, which also goes back to about 1940. Wow. Um, right. Which is, which is amazing. I had you know, I, and it just shows what happens when you start looking in categories you don't normally sort of tinker around with. And so it goes back to 1940. It's got, um, you know, I have no idea of what the sort of community or even the process is around this award, um, but it seems to um, change quite a bit sort of over the years. So it's it's reflecting more contemporary fiction and um, all sorts of interesting authors and voices. And I think right now, um, the reason I, I have started picking up Westerns is again, I, I want to see how everything changed over time. Um, but as an American um, and in an election year that feels incredibly critical to, you know, what is the heart and soul of America? Um, Westerns are such an iconic American genre that it feels that being able to sort of skip around it, look at what did Western fiction say about America and American values and American dreams and sort of, um, a certain sort of hope and vision of America. Um, and how has that changed over, um, 70, 80 years, you know, and how how do people talk about America? And how do people talk about what it what it means to be American? And I'm really interested to see where that leads me. um, Because right now that is, you know, that's a conversation that everyone is having um, over the internet and in their hearts. And um, in November, they're going to be having at the at the polling booth. Um, And I'm curious to see how fiction might inform that over time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's definitely an element of um, of kinds of national pride in particular genres. The the Western, um, as you mentioned, for America, um, you know, Agatha Christie um, yeah, in absolutely. Britain. <laughs> oh, no,
1: you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, uh, and I think that's it's really interesting. I mean, it, it is you know, going back to statues and things like that. It's sort of it's um, they are books. Wind up being sort of moments in time that capture. What's important to the author and and often to the reader,
0: and it does. It kind of it gives you a changing sense of what kind of concerns are relevant to to the you know to the period that you're reading around. And it made me think about what you said about communities that surround institutions like these prizes um, and awards, and around the um, you know the communities that surround the Hugo's and the um, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, and the, you know, the, the quite profound shifts in the ideologies of those communities in the last five years, thinking particularly about the puppies controversy <laughs> <laughs> and and how brilliantly the genre scene is changing to reflect concerns um, of the left, um, but also of equality.
1: I- Completely agree. The whole puppies protest was just—I mean—and you know, we've seen it mirrored across games and comics and films and and sort of every other form of culture, where where people start protesting that something's become too political because all of a sudden they realize that they don't share those politics. But science fiction has always been deeply political. That's that's its point, yeah. uh, isn't it? I mean, it's it's about examining the world from from a different lens. But it, I think it's. You're absolutely right. I mean, all of these institutions, you know, every award has a, you know, a vision or or a motive or a community around it um, has a has a different way of looking at the world. And I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the Hugo Awards. Um, I've never, um, in in that, like literally, like I'm not a fan. Like the the taste of the Hugos has never particularly reflected my own reading taste in the same way that, say, like the Shirley Jackson Award or the um, Arthur C. Clarke Award, um, those, those reflect my reading taste really, really strong. But that's, that's great. That's why it's really important to have all sorts of these institutions and not just one, because it, an award is just a, a particular type of recommendation um, that is constructed in a, in a particular way with all sorts of politics and communities um, and attitudes around it. Um, and I, I love that they all exist. And my, my stance has always been the sort of the more the merrier and the more diverse and eclectic and strange that we can make them, um, the better it is, because then we have more and more recommendations out there. And, and the challenge is to find, you know, the recommendation engine that, that best matches your own taste.
0: Absolutely, and and to find yourself pushed in some ways as well um, by by recommendations made in, in other in other genre institutions. Yeah, that,
1: that's a, a brilliant way of putting it. And you know, I, I I have something like the Shirley Jackson Awards where I'm like, okay, they're they're enough on my wavelength that when they recommend something that I haven't read, um, I know I should check it out. And then similarly, you know, one of my favorite awards is the Goodreads Choice Awards, you know, every year when they just have the massive public vote. Yeah. And those books are so far out of my normal taste. I mean, I really just don't like any of them at all. But it's really, I think, handy and valuable and fun for me to go to use that to discover new genres. So I love it when the Goodreads Choice comes out, because then I go and I learn about, you know. Which are the historical romances that are incredibly popular in that community? You know, which are the which are the comic books that are really popular in that community? And it, it's a really, it's a really nice way of discovering the like mainstream zeitgeist of various genres.
0: Absolutely, uh, yeah. when you when you think about what is important to people and what I mean, you, you know, your own reading challenges, thinking back to you know, um, mystery and um, and uh, westerns. Um, for, for the longest time, a lot of these um, genres have depended on what's popular, not only what is celebrated, right? Because there's kind of um, a, d- a disjunct there. You um, know, we, we all know that romance sells best, um, but, and, you know, and that, or not but, but and that reflects, um, a, a, well, it reflects a demographic of the reading public, but it also reflects um what people are concerned about. Um and I think maybe we see that with the um as you as you were um saying earlier about um the John Martin exhibition and um your accompanying collection, um the kind of the the move to dystopia and the rise of dystopia as um you know a uh, as a popular zeitgeist
1: I totally agree. <laughs> I don't have much to add to that. But yes, I'm nodding profusely. <laughs>
0: Narrative Futures For those writers and speculators listening, stay with us now for writing prompts and exercises designed to encourage putting pen to paper or hands to keyboard, as well as reflection on the writing process. This section is designed and presented by Louis Greenberg.
2: Jared Turin refers to Robert Graves' Greek myths and suggests that mythology was the science of the time, a way to make sense of what we see around us. Let's use that tool to try to make sense of what's happening around us now. Find a news story from today. Don't agonise too much about the choice and reimagine it as a myth. For our purposes, one of the key elements of myth is that it gives reason to phenomena, and another is that characters, rather than the events themselves, take centre stage. The phenomena are personified. Your chosen news story may well be one of random-seeming misfortune or disaster. It may be of luck or prowess. It may be of huge, uncontrollable forces. Make up a reason for the events in your story, and a character who embodies it. For example, a raging wildfire may be the result of a god's dissatisfaction or a petty argument. A record-breaking football score might be the result of magic boots supplied by an angel. As creators and readers, order soothes us, but some art chooses to deny and resist comforting order. Do you think art should disrupt order or assert it? Why? Shuren's accounts of his publishing adventures are amusing and insightful. Jurassic London introduced several writers from around the world to new readers. But as writers, we're all too aware of the corporate backbone of publishing and the struggles of independent publishers, booksellers and distributors to find a foothold in the industry. This is your chance to imagine your ideal publishing company. What would your publishing goals be? Making money? Democratising or decolonizing the industry? Making it environmentally beneficial? Or making beautifully designed artefacts? What stories would you publish and why? How would you make money? Would you raise charitable funding Would you interest enough book buyers to make the business profitable? In your ideal world, would public funding sustain publishing? Can you imagine any future technology that would assist your publishing goals? Jot down a business plan on a scrap of notepaper or a napkin and store it. This dream is for you to keep, but please feel free to share any of your previous exercises with us by email at futuresthinking.torch.ox.ac
0: that's a wrap on episode 5 many thanks to Jared Sheeran for joining us in the next episode EJ Swift shares her negotiations with form and content discusses climate fiction and nested narratives narrative futures